You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open the word of our God together. This morning we have our Old Testament reading from Exodus 33, the verses 7 to 23. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but at young age Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us. What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. And Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, And I proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. So far our Old Testament reading, and then we turn to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. 
But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. Our text this morning is taken from Numbers chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, many years ago one of my teachers said that the summertime was a good time for the church to turn its attention to the more historical books of the Bible. His view was that when the days are bright and hot and hazy, and when many minds are thinking about golf and soccer and holidays, the church should avoid deep doctrine and concentrate instead on God's dramatic dealings in history. Patriarchs and prophets, priests and kings should be the order of the day as well as battles and wars and conflicts and political intrigues. Well, beloved, I'm not sure that I complete or agree completely with him. However, seeing that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, this must surely also apply to the historical parts of the Bible. They must be good for something. History should have its say as well as its day. But then what part of biblical history... We can, of course, turn to those stories and episodes as well as Bible books that we are familiar with. But perhaps this morning and in subsequent days as well, we may be a bit more daring and opt for the less known. So how about the book of Numbers? What do you know about the book of Numbers? And how often have you read it? And when was the last time that you studied it either personally or together in a Bible study? I'm sure that if it was considered, it probably wasn't considered for very long, and you went on to something else. Now, of course, beloved, that's one way of dealing with it. But is that the right way? I think if we were to ask an ancient preacher, and it's noteworthy that there was an early church father who said, if the book of Numbers is read, the hearer will judge that there is nothing in it as a remedy for the weakness or a benefit for the salvation of his soul. And he went on to comment that whenever he preached on this Bible book, his hearers always rejected his messages And they spit them out, he said, as if they were heavy and rather tedious. And the problem, according to him, was not the preacher. It was the book. And so you can say, Numbers is not too popular. And Numbers is also rather challenging. Filled as it is with lists and statistics, archives and stipulations, formalities, duties and laws, it is not easy. And filled as it is with crises of all kinds, with jealousy, discontent, unbelief, rebellion, and apostasy, it is not pretty either. 
And yet, and I keep coming back to that, it must have relevance, even modern relevance. The Holy Spirit would not have caused it to be written nor preserved if it has nothing meaningful to say to us today. And so what is the Holy Spirit saying to us through the book of Numbers? Let's turn to the opening chapter, the opening verse, and I preach to you on the theme, the church in the wilderness. We're going to look for a moment at the place and then at the people and finally at the Lord. Well, beloved, as we turn our attention this morning to what many believers would regard as a rather obscure Bible book, it needs to be said right away that the name of this book as found in your Bibles is boring and insufficiently descriptive of its contents. It is called Numbers. Now that name was given to it by the early church father Jerome as he was translating the Old Testament part of the Bible into Latin, what would subsequently become the Vulgate. He didn't use the original Hebrew text, but rather he used a Greek translation of the Hebrew text. And so when he came to the fourth book of the Bible, he decided to translate a particular Greek word into the Latin tongue, and he called it numeri, or numbers. It was a name that was based on all the numbers that you find mentioned in the opening as well as the closing chapters of this book. Thus it was Jerome who called it Numbers, and the church has been calling it Numbers ever since. And yet at the same time, beloved, it has to be said that this was not its original, nor was this its ancient name, for the Jews called it something else. They called it after the fifth word in verse 1, chapter 1. They called it Bemidbar, or in English, in the wilderness. For them, what was paramount was not the fact that there is a census in the beginning and a census at the end. No, for them, something else was even more important, and that is the fact that this book describes the life of Israel in the desert or in the wilderness. This is a book about the church in the wilderness. Now, if you ask what wilderness, well, it's mentioned in verse 1, it's the wilderness of Sinai. And if you ask when were they there, well, that too is mentioned in verse 1. It's on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. So really, we are here in the formative beginning stages of Israel's national existence. It's not that long ago since they were living in Egypt in bondage. And the long, hot, sweaty days working on Pharaoh's massive building projects We're not even a distant memory. And I'm sure that for some of them, the sting of the lash, as it were, could still be felt and heard. And the cruel edict of Pharaoh about killing all of their male children still haunted many of them. But then deliverance had come. Moses had introduced himself to the elders and to the people of Israel as God's special servant, 
And he had gone to Pharaoh with a message straight from the Lord, a message which said, let my people go. But Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let God's people go. So the plagues of God came upon Egypt. Until finally, finally Pharaoh let them go. And go they did. God led them straight to the waters of the Red Sea. They went in one side and out the other side. But not so the Egyptians. They went in one side, but they didn't come out. As the psalmist says, Pharaoh and all his hosts drowned in the Red Sea. And meanwhile, the people of Israel went on. They went on in, to Mount Sinai. And there they camped before the sacred mountain. There they received the law of God. And there also they rebelled against him in the incident of the golden calf. Is so now, beloved, as this particular Bible book of Numbers opens, Israel is still at Mount Sinai, still licking her wounds of disobedience, still in the desert. The church of God is in the desert. Behind her lies Egypt, a land that had first been a place of refuge, but that became over time a place of bondage. But before her lies something else. Before Israel lies the promised land, the land that God had given by oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their heirs, the land of their fathers and their new land. So what does this make the church at Sinai? Well, in some ways, beloved, you can say this makes it kind of the church in between. She knows where she's come from, and in a sense she knows where she's going, but she has not yet arrived. She's not come to her final destination. Yes, and when you think of that, does that not in a way kind of strike a familiar chord with you? Indeed, can it not also be said of us that we too are, as it were, an in-between church? Behind us lie the history of God's people in the Old Testament. Behind us lies the great work of Jesus Christ, born in the fullness of time, adored with human flesh and blood, who ministered, died, was buried, rose again, and ascended into the heavens. And beloved, before us lies his return. The resurrection, restoration, and renewal of all things in a new heaven and a new earth. So much lies behind us. So much more lies ahead of us. We can rejoice in the accomplished work of Christ. And we can look forward to the finished work of Christ. We are in that sense an in-between church. 
But then we ask, what are the marks of an in-between church? Well, you could answer that in various ways, but if you would answer it according to what you read in the book of Numbers, you would have to say a number of things. And one of the hallmarks of the in-between church is instability. Read on in Numbers, and you can't fail to see it. Troubles, brokenness, tribulation, conflict, rebellion, and so forth. We read that, we think about it, and we ask ourselves, is it really any different today? Well, I know if you listen to some television preachers, you would think that the church has arrived and almost been perfected. But then you scratch the surface a little bit, and something different pops up. It doesn't take much to disturb the peace of the in-between church to upset her members, to dampen her witness, and even to drive her off course. You see, the in-between church is largely a struggling church and a vulnerable church. But then, beloved, if one of the marks is instability, you can say another mark that often pops up is discouragement. Take numbers again. What do you see? You see a church beset not only with problems, but also a church that is in danger of losing its way. Going through the wilderness is not an easy thing. If you're there long enough, all you see after a while is dirt and dust. And hardship is everywhere staring you in the face. And the desert never seems to end. Now that too rings a bell, doesn't it? You can read it in your newspapers, in your church press. Scandal after scandal also adorns the modern church. Compromise and accommodation are everywhere. The forces of darkness and materialism and secularism are always on the attack. It's hard for the in-between church not to get discouraged. And that brings us to a third thing. Since we like three marks, and that's poor vision. I have poor vision. I can't, or I can see things that are close up, but if I take my glasses off, all of you instantly become out of focus. You know, Israel had that problem too. As they walked through the desert, and we're going to see that, as they continue on through the desert, all they saw in front of them was really, in a sense, nothing. It wasn't pretty. They saw dirt. They saw struggle. They saw endlessness. They couldn't see through. And very often they lost sight completely of the end of the journey. The destination and the goal was forgotten. I ring a bell, beloved. 
I think sometimes we too probably have to admit that there are those times when we only see what's immediately in front of us or around us. And that we forget to look farther and further. That we fail to take a page out of the book of Abraham, our father. Because Scripture says, and that's interesting, Scripture says of Abraham that he always looked forward to the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. As he trudged from one end of the promised land to the other. As he went from the far east to the west. He kept his eye on the goal. And so should we. As we travel through this life, no matter sometimes how hard it gets and how ugly it becomes, we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and on what He will bring down one day with Him from above. But then, beloved, if our text has something to say to us about the place where the church is, it also has something to say about the people in the church. What does it say about them? What does our text and our Bible book say about them? Well, really, it tells us that the cure for being an in-between church is found in living by faith. There's only one thing that counteracts instability and discouragement and poor vision, and that's faith. So did those early Israelites take the cue and the cure? No, they did not. And as a matter of fact, beloved, consider that the matter of the census, census that we have alluded to earlier And maybe you've noticed, maybe you know, there are two senses in this particular Bible book. There is a census in the opening chapters, and there's a census in the chapters 27 to 30. So two senses, one at the beginning, one at the end. You might ask, why are there two senses? Well, because we're dealing here with two generations. The first census, found in Numbers 1 and 2, is a census in which are counted all of the people who left Egypt and were camped before God at Mount Sinai. It was taken in the second year of their wanderings. And as for the second census that you find in the chapters 27 to 30, well, it's taken 38 years later when Israel is standing on the plains of Moab. And now note carefully what it says in Numbers 26, 63, and 64, where it says, These are the ones counted by Moses and Eliezer the priest when they counted the Israelites on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Not one of them was among those counted by Moses and Aaron the priest when they counted the Israelites in the desert Sinai. What does that tell you? 
And it tells you that not one of those counted in the first census made it to the second. In other words, in those 38 years, a whole generation of people disappeared. They died in the wilderness. And why did they die? Because of their unbelief. Because they failed to trust, believe, love, depend on the Lord their God, to depend on His presence, His promises, and His power. And in a way that's, I would say, rather unusual. For think for a moment, beloved, after a great deliverance or a great reformation has happened, it's usually the first generation that is full of faith and vigor. They've seen the wonders of God. They have experienced His grace. They have savored His love. These are the committed ones. But then the second generation comes along and something gets lost. The zeal tapers off and the commitment recedes somewhat and the involvement slackens. Yes, and then when the third generation comes along, things get really tough. It's hard to light a fire under them. They yawn at the old stories and they shake their heads at the sacrifices of their parents and they think that they know a better, smarter, and smoother way. Well, beloved, isn't that the way it usually is? It's hard to keep the fire burning generation after generation. But now notice... Notice here in the book of Numbers, it's different. The first generation fails, flounders, and dies in the wilderness. But then a second generation comes along and gets to be counted and to go into the promised land. Then we ask ourselves, what is this? Is this a human improvement story? Is this religious evolution before our very eyes? Is this a case of the sons learning from the sins of their fathers? Is it about the rise of a better generation? Really, beloved, I don't know what it is, except to say, It's all about faith. The first generation dies because of a lack of faith. The second generation marches on in faith. Later on, the Apostle Paul comments on this in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says, Our forefathers, they were all under the cloud, They all passed through the sea. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. 
And then he asks, now these things were written or they occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And these things were written down as warnings to us. Examples, warnings, illustrations. That's how Paul speaks about those generations of long ago. In other words, the peoples and the events in this book of Numbers are meant to be object lessons for you and I. And for all of God's people throughout the ages. And I would say in the end, it doesn't matter what generation you are, first, second, sixth, or tenth. What matters is whether or not you are part of a generation that lives by faith in the triune God. Are you committed to Him? Do you really... I know we hear it every Sunday, but do you really love Him with heart, soul, and mind and all your strengths? Not just a little bit, but a huge bit. Is He first and foremost in your life? On your agenda? Your personal agenda as well as your business agenda? Your family agenda? You know, Israel had every reason to say yes to those questions. Every reason because God lived among them. Numbers 1, verse 1 opens with the words, The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. Notice who's speaking. It's the Lord. L-O-R-D, capitalized, which always means in Scripture is the God of the covenant. The God who has established a sacred bond between himself and his people. Who set them apart. Who's made them his own possession. Who regards them as the apple of his eye. And notice to whom he's speaking. He's speaking to Moses. The mediator of the old covenant. The one who bridges the gap between God and people. And notice where God is speaking. He's speaking to Moses in the tent of meeting. In Exodus, that tent is outside the camp. And Moses, as we read, would go there and everybody would watch Moses go there and they'd worship as Moses went there to speak with God. Later on, the tent of meeting is right in the middle of God's people where the tabernacle is. And there God would speak to Moses on sacred, consecrated ground. And so you you can hear it, beloved, how, how we're told here that right at the very start of their wilderness journeys, God is with them and goes with them. The journey from Sinai to the Promised Land is about to begin. And it's going to be a long, tough journey all through the wilderness But every step of the way, 
God will go with them. The covenant God will travel with his covenant people. And indeed, beloved, as you read that, you need to be reminded and assured that God still goes with his wilderness people. Only today he goes with us in the person of his son. And I dare say that's a source of even greater encouragement to us. For consider the son doesn't just speak at a tabernacle somewhere in the middle of his people. Now the son becomes the tabernacle. John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, he tabernacles among us. He makes his home with us and he shares our very nature. In other words, he knows us through and through. And not only does he know us, he also knows the wilderness. The Gospels say that he went there for 40 days and 40 nights. There he did battle with the devil and all of his temptations. And it's a battle that ends in victory. For when he comes out of the wilderness, he begins his monumental messianic work. Yes, Jesus Christ has gone before us. And Jesus Christ goes with us. And that's why Hebrews says he's the pioneer of our faith. That means someone who goes ahead of us, who clears the way, who knows the ground, who knows the obstacles, who can lead us safely onward. And Hebrews also says he is the perfecter of our faith. And as we stumble and bumble through the wilderness, he's the one who fine-tunes our faith. He's the one who cleans us up and removes our sins and our spots. And he's the one who always fills us with new energy and vision. Power and commitment for the road ahead. In other words, he's the one who leads this church through the wilderness. And he's the one who strengthens and equips his in-between church. Yes, and he is the one who brings us out of the desert into the promised land. So I say to you, do not worry. Just fix your eyes on Jesus and travel on in faith. For he will bring you home. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.